Acts chapter 2, if you would like to follow along. For reading of Scripture, very familiar words to us today from the second chapter of Acts. Picking up at the end of Peter's great Pentecost sermon, beginning in verse 36. Peter said, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other disciples, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, the promise. This promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord will call. With many other words, he warned them and pleaded with them. Save yourself from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. Verse 42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles." God often does great things from very humble beginnings. God often takes our little and creates more. The the great God of more who wants to do more for us than we've let Him do, who wants to do more for us than we can comprehend, also has that same philosophy for our church and for the church. God wants our church to be more than we can imagine and more than we are. God has great plans for us. I'm thankful we serve a God of more. I'm thankful we serve a God who is not limited in, in, uh, in uh, His uh, supply, who is not hindered by, by economic times and downturns. I'm, I'm thankful that, that we serve a God that is above all of these things, who seeks to give us more. And in the church, God does the same as well. And the church started from a very humble beginning. If you go back to where Jesus began His public ministry, He calls 12 men And that really becomes the foundational basis of the church as we read in Acts and as we know of it today. Twelve disciples. It was not an unusual thing for him to do that. In fact, it was the custom of the day for a rabbi to gather gather a group of young men around him to to observe him and to learn from him and and to mimic him. Many times in the rabbis of Jesus' day, though, those young men were chosen by political appointment or by Uh, by the fact that their father was influential or had a lot of money or could do something to benefit uh, that rabbi personally. But Jesus chose 12 men who were none of those things, the commonest of men, fishermen by trade, a tax collector who was looked down upon by everyone. One thing you can say about Jesus' 12 disciples is they were common men. One commentator has said they could be compared, they were as common as dirt, probably could not read, all of them probably could not read or write at least at the time of calling. They had probably traveled very little, maybe had never been really outside their little village and their cluster of of, of where they were born and and where they lived and raised. They, They didn't do much. They didn't have a great vision. They didn't have a great concept of the world at large or the needs around them. They lived in a very small, isolated world. And they followed Jesus for three years and seemed to not get it at all. If I would have been Jesus, I would have been very troubled to leave this world and leave the message of, uh, that he, of hope and salvation into the hands of these guys. 
Of course, it was, the church was not dependent upon those men as much as it was dependent upon Jesus himself. By the time Jesus gets to the end of his life, they've already lost one of these disciples. Judas has gone a different way and for a different reason and is no longer with them. Now it's 11 men. And Jesus tells these men something very unusual. It's recorded in several places in the Gospels, but especially in the book of Matthew. I want you to go into all the world and preach the gospel and baptize those in my name. What a great statement to give to 11 common, ordinary men. The Great Commission. Go into all the world and preach. And they didn't even have a concept of what the world was. And uh, Jesus was crucified, and they had trouble identifying themselves with Jesus. In fact, when Jesus was arrested, the gospel writers tell us that these disciples scattered. We know at least that Peter stayed nearby and followed at a distance and, and was recognized on three different occasions as someone who had been with Jesus, and he was quick to even deny that. They went back to fishing, some of them, the only life they knew, but on the third day, the tomb was empty. Christ was resurrected. He began to appear to these men and to many, many more. In fact, at least 500 different folks he appeared to. He got the disciples back together, these 11 disciples, and formed a band. And, and prior, to, prior to giving them the Great Commission, they seemed to be together. And now it's about almost 50 days later, about 40 days after the resurrection, standing on a hill outside a outside of the city, Jesus tells these 11 disciples something more dramatic than he's told them before. I want you to go to Jerusalem and wait until you receive the power from on high, and then I want you to be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the world. 11 men who had trouble even identifying themselves with being with Jesus. And he commissions them to go to Jerusalem, which represents their hometown, and Judea, which represents the community at large, and even Samaria, which was on the other side of the tracks in the Jewish way of thinking, and to the very ends of the earth. And for whatever reason, we, we don't really have it revealed in Scripture, but these disciples decided to do just that. They went to Jerusalem and they waited, collected themselves in an upper room, they had been joined by some of the women that followed Jesus, and we know that by, by the time they got to the upper room, there was 120,000 of them praying, waiting, wondering, confessing, asking forgiveness, no doubt, seeking God in a new and fresh way. That's the characteristics and need of great revival today, that we come before the Lord in humility and we bow in His presence and we, we confess our sin and we acknowledge Him as Lord and we, we, take, we, we, we use old-fashioned words like restitution that we make to make rights wrong, to make wrongs right, and, and uh, we seek to confess Him as Lord. And for 10 days they did that. And we know that on the 10th day, when Jerusalem was at its uh, peak people-wise at the time of the Passover, the Holy Spirit came in a dramatic and powerful way. We know the story of how there, a mighty rushing wind went through that city and captured the attention of everyone. I thought as a little boy, how could a wind capture the attention of a group of people? And I think it's more commensurate to a Texas tornado that kind of came through that town. 
a loud noise that captured the attention. And then these disciples and these, these disciples went outside and there appeared, the Bible says, as cloven tongues of fire that set on their heads. Don't know exactly what that, was, what that meant, what that means, except that it was a dramatic event. And then the disciples began to speak in languages they did not know to be able to communicate the truth of the gospel to those who were in Jerusalem who were not of their language group and all understood. And then God began to add to them, add to their number. It's amazing that in this crowd in Jerusalem had to be those who killed Jesus. It's amazing that in this crowd of people, there had to be those who were, who were opponents of Jesus. And, uh, and Peter speaks very specifically to them. We've read this morning how he said, you are responsible for crucifying and killing the Lord Jesus Christ. But this time, because the Holy Spirit was in control, they didn't get mad at Peter and they didn't arrest him and they didn't threaten him. In fact, there was great fear about him. And the Bible said they only could say, the crowd could only say one thing. What shall we do? And Peter said, repent and believe in Jesus as Lord and Savior and be baptized. And they did. And 3,000 joined the church that day. In another place in Scripture, another 4,000 joined. And a couple chapters over it says that there was a new group of believers and now the number total 5,000. By the time we get to chapter 11, it says a multitude of people were coming to Jesus. And by the time we get to chapter 13, the, the, no more description is used to, to try to quantify the number of people. They came in record numbers to, to, to believe in Christ. The God of more blessed them in ways they could not comprehend. We talk about church growth today, and we set goals for a local church, and we think if we could grow by 10%, it would be a great year. If we grew by 20%, it would be a banner year. If we, were to, if we were to grow by 50%, man, we wouldn't know what to do. I wondered what these 11 original men thought when the Holy Spirit came upon them, and the, and the power came, and the church was born. Do you think they thought maybe if they just survived that day, it would be a good day? Do you think maybe if they thought the Lord would add to our number to 120, we could grow by, we could grow by 20% and, and, and there would be a few more of us and we could grow by 50% and there might be 180. 50% growth is unusual in anybody's book at any time. But God did so much more than that. 3,000 people joined and another 2,000 in another place. And by the get on down after the death of Stephen and by the time uh, uh, Paul is converted on the Damascus Road and all that story. That they just, the Bible just says there were people everywhere. The Bible says great crowds of people joined and the church was multiplied. The church was multiplied again and again and again and again. God wants to do more for our church than we can comprehend. I sometimes pray too small for our church. Sometimes I'm geared to pray that Lord just give us a new family. Give us a family with kids for our children's program. Give us a family with teenagers. Give us, give us young adults, just a, couple, just a family or two. I've had to get on my knees and repent before the Lord for thinking so small. God wants to do great things for us like He did for this early church. He didn't just multiply them by a little bit. He didn't give them a 10% increase. He didn't give them one or two to, to, to add to their number that year. He, he, he gave them dramatic numbers, and 120 became 3,120. And then 5,120, and then 
Great crowds believed, and God multiplied the church daily as those who were being saved wanted to count themselves with those who followed this crucified and risen Lord. I pray that God would do that in our community as well, and there would be something so significant about the lives we live and the church that we were a part of that people would catch the vision of a crucified God and what He can do for them, and that we would grow in, in ways that uh, only God can orchestrate. But I find not only did, that, did God multiply them, but these disciples had to form a group of people that did something as well. They had to have a portion of this that helped them maintain and sustain the growth. And that's really what I want to talk to you about today, what these disciples did when God sent numbers to them. For I believe therein is part of the key for a real church growth and part of the key that oftentimes is missing in our world today lends itself to a very common understanding in verse 42 in a very common outline. It says that when God multiplied the church and 3,000 joined, what did they do? Well, we read in verse 22, they simply continued in devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. That's the Bible, by the way. And to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. And then verse 43 goes, certainly goes along with that. Everyone was filled with awe and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. And all the believers were together and had great unity and held all things in common. I want to talk to you about quickly about these four things. These, these uh, disciples led the church in devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. They, they placed a high priority on God's Word They placed a high priority on the truth of God's Word. They placed a high priority on seeking God to lead them in the right decisions and to do the right things. They read the Word of God. They studied the Word of God. They devoted themselves to the Word of God. It's a key to what's happening. And oh, that we would be like that in our world today, not being critical in any way. Please don't misunderstand me in that context. But but folks, the church grows in, in, in direct relationship to how the membership grows. And if we're not growing spiritually, how can we expect God to increase our numbers and our church to grow? There's a correlation to it when God's people are on fire, when God's people are filled with, with praise and with His Spirit and with His truth, when God's people are so devoted to God that that becomes a motivating factor for all that they do. It catches fire and people notice They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, and they taught about Jesus. And they asked God what they should do. And they sought the opinion of God more than the opinion of others. They didn't go to the Internet to see what everybody was thinking. They didn't read what everybody's already given their opinion about. They sought God. And that's still the way we ought to be living today in our world today. Do you seek God for the decisions that you have to make? I mean simple decisions. Should we buy this or should we not buy this? Should we go here? Should we go there? Lord, I'm faced with a decision at work. What should I do? That might seem to be radical to some folks, but I'll tell you folks, it's not radical. It is biblically based, and it is the way we live, a Christian person lives when they have God's victory in their life, when God is real and alive and directing traffic. People want to know what those who seek God's direction are doing and why they want to do it. 
Have you read the book lately? That's why we sometimes talk, and I talk a lot about having a time every, every day to, to read God's Word, not to speed read it, not to see how many times you can get through it, not to read my three chapters a day so I can finish in a year. Not being critical of that. We read God's Word to gain truth and understanding. I had a professor tell me one time, I asked, how much of the Bible should I read every day to stay current and stay alive and stay victorious? I was expecting a number. He said these words, you should read until you're inspired or until you are convicted. And God will reveal Himself to us through His Word. And God will give us direction. And God will set us on the right path. If we studied His Word, it's so important. It's not just a daily discipline we try to impose upon people. It is the essence and life and breath. How do we know what to do if we don't know what's in this book? I hope that you read God's Word every day. I hope that you've read it through from cover to cover. I, I Sometimes I start at Genesis and I read it through every day. Sometimes I read the same chapter over again. Sometimes I read the same passage, sometimes for a week. Sometimes I read only the words of Jesus that He spoke, the letters in red. But we've got to ingest God's Word if we expect to live a victorious Christian life. It's an old-fashioned thing. It's what the early church did when God added the increase, and it's still a viable need today. I was preaching in revival services a number of years ago and went to a church that uh, uh, the, the, the pastor had some kids that I was in college with. And I'd been to his church numerous times, and uh, I was preaching starting on Tuesday night, and I got there just before church started, so uh, when on Tuesday night, uh, and so we went to eat after church was, was over. I liked it. In those days, I liked to eat after church, not before it. And as we were leaving church, I said, where, where are the kids? And he told me about this one's in this part of the country, and this one's in that part of the country. And he mentioned one name, and he said, he's actually in my, at, at my house. He said he's bought an old 56 Chevrolet, and he's rebuilding the engine. I thought, that's unusual. I didn't know he was an engine builder or had anything to do with cars. And he said, well, he really hadn't, hadn't had that uh, interest before. But, but, you know, he's just suddenly become interested in being, in being a mechanic and building his own engine and rebuilding it. And he said he's just immersed in it. It's amazing. And I wanted to see that. Walked out into the garage that day. The, the guy went to school and saw me, and he said, he said these words. He said, Williams, don't say anything, and don't be critical. I said, I'm not being critical. I just want to know what you're doing. He had on a set of coveralls that had Chevrolet on the side. He had a ball cap on that had something to do with NASCAR. He had an oily rag hanging from the, his back pocket. He had grease all over his hands and up to his elbow. He looked like a mechanic. And I said to him, I didn't know you knew anything about engines. And he said, well, I really don't. But I've got this manual over here, how to rebuild an, a, a gasoline engine. And uh, we talked about that a while, and I thought it was kind of odd he was just putting it, everything together. He said to his father, he said, I just have to put the battery in and it'll be ready to start her up. Let's go riding around the block. And I wanted to see that. Put the battery in, opened the garage door. The, the driveway was just a little bit longer than the length of the car. To my shock and surprise, the car actually started. It smoked and sputtered and shook and did all those kind of things. But the smoke cleared and he got in and eased it out of the driveway, eased it out of the garage. He got right to the end of the driveway and the car began to shake and a loud boom took place and smoke came out of parts of the engine that shouldn't have smoke coming out of them and it quit and uh, couldn't get started again. He would have it towed to a, a real mechanic the next day to find that the engine was ruined. 
it had blown a rod or something like that and had ruined the engine. I went back into the garage and found a, a sitting on his tool chest, a large a serving bowl like you'd have in the kitchen, a large, uh, like you'd serve salad in, a large, and it was heaped over with bolts and gaskets and some washers. And I said to him, you think maybe you left these out of that engine? And he said, oh, no. He said, I didn't leave them out. He said, you know, these engines are made from the factory with a lot of extra nuts and bolts and gaskets. He said, they just use these for fillers, and they don't need it. And I said, I don't know anything about engines, but I believe if you take something out, you ought to put it back in. And uh, we argued about that, and he told me again I didn't know what, he, uh, what I was talking about. I went over and looked at his how-to manual. The first page had some grease on it. The second page had a little bit of greasy fingerprint on it. But the next page was brand new. And I said to him, how far of this manual did you look at in rebuilding your engine? He said, well, I got to the first couple of pages. He said, once you know how an engine works, he said, it's so simple, I don't need the manual. And I was real tempted to tell him what I thought about that, but I didn't. I never forgot that story, though. A box of extra parts, a bowl of extra parts that are not needed, a manual that is not used, and now an engine that is ruined and cost him more to, uh, to have a new engine put in than it would have cost him to rebuild the engine that he had. I think about that oftentimes when I think about this book. Folks, this is a manual on how to live, and if we're, just, if we're just casually reading it and casually observing it, if we don't get it and apply it and take it to our lives, if we don't read first and then work, very much like my wannabe mechanic. He looked the part. He had grease in the right places. He had a rag in his back pocket. He had the coveralls on that. I mean, he looked it, but he, wasn't, he was just going through the motions of trying to be a mechanic because he didn't know what was in the book. We have to read God's Word, and I challenge you this week, if you're not doing so, to begin to read God's Word. Ask God to speak to you. He will answer, by the way. Ask God to show you what He wants you to see in Scripture. Read until you're inspired. Read until you're convicted. It's the key to what the, these disciples did, these apostles did, when God added 3,000 people to their church that day. Not only did they do that, but they continued and devoted themselves to fellowship. What an interesting statement to make. Of all the things I would have put together as a key for church growth, fellowship would not have been number two. But they continued in fellowship one with another. The Greek word used for fellowship simply means sharing something in common. How important is that today? Connecting with each other. Remember, this church is made up of a bunch of Jewish folks, and it was made up of Gentiles, and it was made up of men and women. It was made up of slaves and slave owners. It was made of the rich and made of the poor. It was comprised of people we didn't like and people we didn't value. It was comprised of those who kept the law and were circumcised, and those who did not keep the law and were uncircumcised, and the, they all came together in the cause of Christ. How's a church going to survive? They survived because they devoted themselves to God's Word and to fellowship one with another. We live in such a day that a day of separation. We, 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 have, we have wooden fences at our house that separate us from the neighbor. We have garages that we drive into and shut the door so that we don't see anybody we have a way to communicate with people without having to talk to them. We have a way to know what's going on in the lives of other people without ever having to interact with them. The, the electronic world has many great values, but it has some very negative ones. And sometimes it is that we substitute knowledge for contact with people in fellowship with one another. 
The church today is starving. Church members are starving for fellowship with each other. If we know each other better, if we know each other better, we'll work together. We'll get along better. We'll find great harmony. And that person that has irritated us so greatly, when we understand where they've come from, we might have a different opinion to the church continue daily in fellowship. It is contact with people that causes a church fellowship to grow. It's not electronic contact. That can be a part of it. It's not an electronic world that we connect with people. It is face-to-face, one-on-one, handshake-to-handshake, kindness-to-kindness, word-to-word. It was a key to a group of 3,000 people who didn't like each other and didn't understand the value of each other coming together for the cause of Christ. They studied God's Word and they fellowshiped with one another. How important that is today. I was when I, in my younger days, I was invited to be on a hunting lease with a, with a good friend of mine. We had hunted many times before. Had a little piece of property out there in deep east Texas. And I was surprised to see that he invited another man to be a part of our hunting lease that I didn't know. The guy's name was John. After talking to him for five minutes, I decided I never wanted to talk to John again. He's the most irritating guy to talk to. I believe I'd seen in a long time. He, he could say hello and rub you the wrong way. He, he, was, he was so aggressive about himself. And if you got a new gun, he had a new gun that was better. If you got a set of binoculars, he had the, real, the right set of binoculars. He, he, was all kind, he was just a real irritating guy. And one day, I only had a few days to hunt in those times coming in from revival meetings. And one day, I decided I would go. I had one chance to hunt this week, and I went. And lo and behold, guess who was there? Old John. And it was pouring down rain. And he said, the weatherman says, this storm's going to move out in a couple of hours. If we just stay and wait, it was the only chance I had to hunt, and I was going to stay, and I hoped he would go home, but he didn't. And I thought, what am I going to do for two or three hours, sitting face-to-face with this guy? And there was no way to easily get out of that. And so I decided I would just try to grin and bear it and pray that God would help me not say what I thought I wanted to say to him. Oh, he was so aggravating. And then I asked him a question. Tell me where you graduated high school. And he paused a minute, and he said, well, I went to several, and he began to tell me his life story. He said, when I was born, when I was, when I was about two years old, my father left, and I've never seen him to this day. He said, when I was almost five years old, my mother wrote a piece of paper, put it in an envelope, pinned it to my shirt, and took me to an orphanage and left me standing on the front door, and I've never seen my mother again. He said they finally opened, somebody finally came out of the door and found me and read the note, and it basically said, my mother said, I can't take care of this child, and I don't want him. And he said, for the next 12 years, I was in foster care, almost every year in a different home, he said, I know there's some wonderful godly people that, that, that provide foster care for kids like me, but he said, I didn't have them at first. And he said, my foster family was mean. And when I got a little bit older in junior high, they started hitting me. And when I would do something wrong, they would, they would discipline me physically really hard. And he said, by the time I got out of high school, I was as big as they were. And he was a big guy. And he said, when the old man hit me, I hit him back. And I got kicked out of all these places, and I ran away from home, and life was so miserable. 
And he said, I was about 16 or 17 years old. I had committed enough uh, uh, crimes and done enough wrong that, that they took me to juvenile court. And the judge said, he said, I heard them talking. And the, and the, the, the folks on the other side said, he'll be 18 in a little less than two years. We can put him in juvenile detention for two years. And by the, by the time he'll be 18, and then we'll set him out and he won't be our problem and he said they talked for a while, and he said it was so sad to hear him talk, hear them talk about him like he was a like he was a piece of furniture. But he said there was another couple in church in his court that day, an older man and woman. And he said they asked if they could see the judge, and he said for some reason they had heard about me, and, and they asked the judge to put me in their care for two years. And he said, because no one else had offered, and no one was given hope, they did that. He said the gentleman was a doctor. And they were dynamic, devoted Christians. He said they took me to church and they didn't want to go. And when I, he said I was disrespectful to them and, and they still stayed, stayed kind to me. He said they didn't try to abuse me or they didn't try to take advantage of me. They listened to me. They let me talk. They let me cry. They let me cuss in their home. They continued to love me. And he said I finally realized that I could not do anything to cause these people not to love me. And he said through that process, I found the Lord. And it's turned my life around. Well, I'm feeling pretty bad by that time. I'm thinking, Lord, I don't like this guy. I don't want to, I'm happy to not like him. I don't want to hear all this stuff and have to like him all of a sudden, you know, being a little facetious. I came away with a different picture of him. When I finally got to know him, I realized what happened to make him the way he was. And instead of being aggravated and instead of being frustrated with him, I thank the Lord that he got the right place, the right people at the right time. He would soon go on to be a pastor of a church. He's a pastor of a church in the hill country of Texas. If we know each other better, if we fellowship and continue in fellowship, God will do amazing things. I want to challenge you this week to connect with somebody in our church, somebody that nearly goes to our church, somebody that's on the edges of our church. Connect with them in some way. They continued in the apostles' teaching. They continued in fellowship. Then they continued in the breaking of bread. Interesting that Luke doesn't put both of those together. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to breaking of bread. There is something that happens when we sit across a common table and we eat together. I don't know what it is. I don't know what the unique part of it is. I, I like to eat, so I'm all for that, you know. But there's something, uh, people we enjoy and we break bread with, we, we find a common bond with. And let me tell you, people who eat together pray together. People who eat together stay together. People who, who, who share fellowship over a meal don't, don't give up on each other easy. We, we hear their story. We, we hear their heart. We know what's going on. And it's just a way, another way of connecting and having great fellowship with people. People that we do not know. Maybe people that we don't like. Maybe people whose value we don't understand. They broke bread regularly, devoted themselves to that. And then finally, they devoted themselves to prayer. I think if I'd have been Luke, I would have put prayer up there first. I believe I'd have put prayer first and reading the Bible second and then fellowship and then eating. Maybe eating and then fellowship. But he puts it a very specific way. This early church, 3,000 strong, trying to figure out what to do and how to organize themselves, devoted themselves to prayer. And isn't it amazing that the words after that say, therefore... They were filled with awe 
and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. They prayed and they marveled at what God had done. They, they, they devoted themselves to prayer and they could not grasp what God was going to do as a result of their prayers. Oh, that we would pray like that today. Pray regularly, pray diligently, pray as the Lord taught us to pray, to recognize Him and His greatness, to honor His name, to seek the Lord in a new way, to pray that His kingdom would come and that His will would be done not only in heaven but on earth and through me. They devoted themselves to prayer. And God did amazing things through this group, not because they had life all figured out. The 11 disciples couldn't even admit they knew Jesus on the day of His arrest. Not because they were theological experts. They didn't really know anything. But they found a common cause. And the common cause was the need for Christ. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to breaking of bread, and to praying. And God, in the book of Acts again, it says over and over, God multiplied those who were believing the God of more gave them greater things than they ever comprehend. It was not without problems. It was not without difficult times. But, but God prevailed. I contend to you this morning that within this 42nd, 46th verse, 42nd verse is a great formula for church growth needed today. Because God wants to bless our church in ways we can't comprehend Oh, that we as God's people would, would, would devote ourselves to reading His Word. We, we would devote ourselves to connecting with people face-to-face, word-to-word. We would have fellowship one with another over a common meal. And that we would pray earnestly and fervently. In fact, Jesus would say, said previously, my house is to be called a house of prayer. The church began in a prayer meeting that lasted 10 days. And the church will survive because of the prayers of God's people. They continued daily in these things. And what a formula for God to do more. For out of small beginnings, the God of more does great, wonderful, miraculous things. He seeks to do that in your life. He seeks to do it in my life and in our church if we would just devote ourselves to these things, lift us up above all the stuff that sidetracks us, if we, if we would pray through some of our hurts and heartaches, if we would pray through our bad attitudes, if we would pray through what they said and what they've done or what they've not said or what they've not done, if we, if we would get help, let God raise us to a level to lift us above all the stuff of life that keeps us separated. By the way, that's a good definition of what real worship is. We connect with God in such a way that He lifts us above all the stuff and things of life. And we focus on Him and His greatness. Oh, that we would pray and connect ourselves with the God of more. I challenge you this week, would you join me? By the way, I never ask you to do something that I'm not doing. Would you join me in reading God's Word intentional this week? Would you join me in trying to connect with somebody face-to-face? Have fellowship one with another. It's the most wonderful thing in the church to have fellowship with, each, with fellow Christians. Would you devote yourself to specific prayer? And let's ask the great God of more to do what He wants to do in our lives. Wouldn't it be great if we had 3,000 people show up next Sunday? I know that's not, to, that's not to, uh, germane to the discussion, but 
I traveled with a film with the Jesus film team one time in South Africa. They had a little church there that had started 20 years ago. They had run 30 or 40 for 20 years. Couldn't get above 40 mark. They'd, they'd get to 40, and then they'd go back down to high 20s, and they would average out to about the 30s. And 20 years, the missionary said, we decided that that church had already missed its time for growth. 20 years, the habits were already formed. But they went into that little town, the little village of that town, and showed the Jesus film for three nights in the language of this particular group of people. The Jesus film telling the life and story, crucifixion, death of Jesus. He said the next Sunday morning, the pastor called him about church time. And he said, there's 500 people here that say they've accepted Christ from the Jesus film, and they want to come to church, and what should we do? And the missionary said, how many of your own people do you have there? And he said, we've got about 30. And the missionary said, you need to start 30 Sunday school classes this morning and somehow figure out a way to get these people acclimated into the church, into to, to growing and to be disciplined in the way of the Lord. Oh, that God would do that for us today and help us in every way from humble beginnings. God does great things. I've read the story in closing. I read the story again this week of a little baby born in 1921 in Coweta, Oklahoma. Anybody know where Coweta, Oklahoma is? I've preached there several times. It's a little place, by the way. 1921, into that family. They didn't believe in God. They didn't read the Bible. They didn't go to church. He, he describes his growing up in his teenage years in this way. He said, I was a happy pagan. I did everything I wanted to do, and I did everything I believed I could get away with doing. Went to college in Oklahoma, Northeastern State University in Tahlequah, now he's in his early 20s. He's got an economics degree, a business degree. He believes California is the, is the road to prosperity. And, and in his 20s, he goes to California and starts a, a, a confection company selling candy and, and, and little goodies and baskets and things like that. Bright's California Confection. And he started going to the Presbyterian church nearby. And for the first time as a man in his middle 20s, he heard the message of Christ and it gripped his heart and he gave his heart and soul to Jesus that day. Well, he said he'd never read the Bible. He, it was all new to him. He had a hunger for God's Word and understanding it. He enrolled in Bible studies and was intent about understanding God's Word, realizing he wasn't progressing as fast as he should. So he enrolled in seminary so that he could study God's Word. He says it was in seminary he felt the first time God's call on his life not to preach and not to be a teacher. He felt God's call on his life to, to work to fulfill the Great Commission, go into all the world and preach the gospel, teaching and baptizing in the name of Jesus. Well, he said he decided he would focus on the greatest group of, uh, the, the area with the greatest group of kids that he could speak to. That was the University of California, Los Angeles, UCLA. He went and began to talk to them about Jesus. He, he, he sought to find a simple way to describe the need and the process of salvation through that process. Back in, the, back in the 1940s and 50s, Bill Bright started an organization, Campus Crusade for Christ, and he came up with a track that's the four spiritual laws 
God loves you and has a plan for your life. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Jesus died so that you could be saved from the damage of your sin. Confess Jesus as Lord and Savior. By the time he came to near the end of his career, that four spiritual laws had been translated into 100. It had been translated and distributed 100 million times in every major language of the world. In 2011, Campus Crusade for Christ had 25,000 missionaries around the world in 191 countries. Bill Bright wrote over 100 books and pamphlets. He served on governmental committees. To, 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 he was involved in the spreading of the gospel. He was devoted to he even was He even won an equivalent of a Nobel Peace Prize. And he gave the money into the fulfilling of the Great Commission. Go into all the world and preach and teach. When he died, one of his counterparts, Billy Graham, said, I have never met a man that carried such a burden for the Great Commission and evangelization of the world as Bill Bright from humble beginnings. He touched the world, he touched his world for Christ, and only eternity will reveal the result of those efforts. I want to remind you folks, God is large and He's still in charge, amen? I want to remind you the back of the book says God wins. I want to remind you that the God of more seeks to do more in our lives than we've let Him do and seeks to do more in our church than we have let Him do. It's not about numbers, it's about God. And the disciples, these apostles give us a great example and a great formula. Not tricks, not gimmicks. They devoted themselves to the study of God's Word and to fellowship and to breaking of bread, and to prayer. And the Lord added daily, such as those were being saved. May He do it again for all of us in our world today. Amen. If you're glad to be in church, would you say amen? Let's stand this morning, and we're going to sing a closing song. And I uh, want to pray with you before we do that. Our Father, we've looked into the pages of Your Word, and we find some amazing things that happened. May we not fall into a trap of believing that the days of miraculous events are over. Lord, we need you. Our church needs you. Our marriages need you. We need you in every aspect of our lives. Help us, Lord, to study your word this week like never before. May we pray like we've not prayed in a long time. May we ask you specific things and let you direct our lives. May we not make major decisions without consulting you. And may we interact with each other in a very purposeful and attentive way. And we ask you to bless our efforts and bless our efforts and bring about the result you want. May we not limit you by the way we think. We're thankful for your love and care and protection upon all of us. And we ask these things in your name. Amen and amen.